Hey, and I want to welcome you to a Practically Pastoring bonus episode. Today is a really good day because we're going to be talking about something every single person in ministry will encounter, and that is this, people in crisis. Um, yeah, we actually have a guy named Nathan Falco coming in. He's kind of a specialist in that area, and we were able to ask him some really, really pointed questions. So I hope this can benefit you, but also just want to let you know, we have tons more bonus content like this coming and available at our YouTube page, Practically Pastoring. Feel free to check that out anytime. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Delmar Pete from Practically Pastoring, and I'm here today with a one-on-one with pastor and hospice care guru, Nathan Falco. Uh, I met Nathan back in 2007 as he was on the way out of CSU and I was on the way in. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dale. It's great to be with you again yeah. today. It's good to see you, man. Uh, it's We've known each other for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, going on, what, uh, 15 years or more? That's insane. I, just you saying that makes me feel old, bro. Like, I didn't this early in the morning for that, <laughs> but, um, funny. Personally, when, I prefer the word seasoned. Oh, see, I already like where this conversation's going, <laughs> but, uh, you were, uh, you were my fraternity president at, uh, Psi Kappa Phi at Charleston Southern when I was pledging in. That's right. So you saw, That's right. I remember many saw. times toting you around in the back of my car around town. <laughs> yeah. We, how much of that can we share? Right, that was the back seat, share. not the trunk. Yes, yes, because that wasn't hazing, right? We 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 didn't haze at all. <laughs> no, no I, I think sometimes I try to tell people I was in a Christian fraternity in uh, in college, and they would give me this like confusing puppy look, like is that even possible? And it seems like an oxymoron at times. And uh, and sometimes I'm going to be honest, as I was pledging in that year, I <laughs> I felt that a little bit myself. Um, how hard was it being the president of the of these little kids? you know, just pledging in straight out of high school. You know, um, when we carried around a a title like Christian Service Fraternity, um, and uh, you're right, I had a a bunch of young guys right out of high school who barely knew what that was themselves. And honestly, as president, sometimes I was trying to figure out what it was. Uh, Sometimes it was a little like herding cats, you know, (laughs) Uh, because I kind of had the public eye on me because, you know, when you're president, the buck stops with you. Um, but there were there were a lot of opportunities for Christian witness, mm. for Christian growth um, and dialogue uh, with with the world, because we kind of turned on its ear what the world um, had come to learn was worldly. Mm. And I think that was really unique. Yeah, I'm going to be honest, man. I, I really never even planned on doing that when I went to college uh, and then I met you guys. But I will tell you, to your credit, um, the year I was a freshman pledging in, um, I, there's always one night you and I both know where most people quit who are going to quit. And uh, I just remember um, you leaning into that conversation um, because after you left, I watched other guys do it poorly. You know, um, well, just quit, man. But I remember you just kind of stopping and saying, OK, I realize you're a little stressed out right now, but, uh, but can we talk about that? And I think that's the first time that I saw you more than just like a a president of a, of a club, but, uh, having what I would call the the heart of a pastor. Well, thank you, Dale. And, and really that's in that context was partly where I began my own journey of Mm self-discovery on, um, 
the calling God would place later on my life to be uh, a pastoral caregiver. At that time, I wasn't even expecting to uh, work in um, hospice as a chaplain. I didn't even know what that was at the time. Uh, but even then, God was already starting to prepare me on that road, and I didn't even know it. I'm telling you, man, that has been, just watching you do this from afar, I have just envied what I've watched you learn and do. So so how about that? Before we get into like the meat of this conversation, because I think today is one of those low-hanging, practical fruit conversations, um, can you just kind of explain in a nutshell what it is you do? Like, could you describe your job? It's a very specific pastoral job. Yes, yes. My title is hospice chaplain. And um, I usually don't lean right into that when someone asks, what kind of work do you do? Because usually if I reply with, I'm a hospice chaplain, um, I either get another person's life story in response, mm-hmm. or it just shuts down the conversation because people are like, oh, you're a hospice chaplain. I'm done with this conversation because it's uncomfortable when we hear the word hospice mm. and people are kind of unsure what is a chaplain. So um, hospice in a nutshell is um, I view it as a healthcare ministry. Really it is a healthcare field um, in terms of the world, but um, its purpose is to alleviate the suffering of those who are dying. Mm. Uh, and that's not just those who are in that 11th hour right before death, but it's those includes those who have just been given news that, you know, their condition is no longer treatable and they only have maybe six months or maybe a little more. Um, so we help them on that journey in all types of suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual. And where I come in is with the spiritual suffering mm. and that's the chaplain part. Um, a chaplain is not a preacher. We don't go and preach messages uh, uh, to people uh, like your pastor does in the pulpit. Uh, we don't um, explicitly evangelize uh, like a missionary does. Although we do all those things when the atmosphere is right. Uh, some, someone described pastoral care to me as the back door of evangelism. In other words, you meet people from every walk of life, uh, Protestant, Catholic, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, um, and you meet them where they are, you find out what their needs are, and then you respond to those needs in the best way you can. And sometimes those needs lead you to an opportunity to present the plan of salvation or to um, provide spiritual truths that promote growth in person's faith. Um, and sometimes if it's out of your scope of practice, you find a person who can provide the care that you can't provide. So that's the mm-hmm. essence of what a chaplain does. Just recently, you really helped me out of a bind. And that's why I know that we need to have this conversation because you know about what happened with that passing of a older man that I just experienced where um, a hospice in this town, I'm in Sumter, um, not your hospice, you're a part of Nathan, a different one. Um, they they kind of were dropping the ball and I got called in to this older person's house because they didn't have a pastor. And they were like, listen, we just need someone here. And uh, his wife and, and daughter-in-law got a hold of me. And uh, I showed up 
I didn't have a clue what to do. Now, I've been to a few bedsides, but, you know, when you think, well, hospice has got this handled, you know, why are they calling me, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I showed up and he was already kind of in the final stages of life. And, and he was, you probably know the term for, it, but he was collecting fluid in his mouth. And, um, and they, they needed something to extract that. And uh, the daughter-in-law called hospice and they said, basically, almost verbatim, he's about to die anyways. We don't have any of those suction things. By the time we had you one, he would be dead. And then they said, call us when he's gray. And I'm in the room when all that's happening. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know this man's name. <laughs> you know? And I remember you and I had been talking. And one of the things you had told you had told me before was, Dell, you just find a way to be present. Because um, you are, you're there in the final stages, which is, is a lot of people's last memory with their loved ones. Um, and, and I remember the, the wife of the man, she was just so nervous because he was spitting up. She goes through the kitchen and grabs a turkey baster, dude. And she puts a turkey baster in his mouth and is starting to suck this stuff up. And I'm watching this man basically almost about to pass away. And his wife has a turkey baster in his mouth. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I said, can we? I walked up to him and said, Hey, listen, I know this is really stressful. I don't know what I can offer. Can I pray? And they said, we would love, please pray. So, so we got around this man's bedside table and uh, we prayed. I'm going to be honest, Nathan. It was not some fantastic prayer. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, bro. I was channeling my inner Nathan. And then, uh, but I prayed and, um, and then they said, thank you so much. And, and then I left and I got a call like five minutes later from the daughter-in-law saying, as you were pulling out the driveway, we lost his pulse. And, and then the thing she said to me basically was, we're so glad our last memory with him is not with a turkey baster in his mouth, but it's uh, standing beside his bed, praying with him as he met his creator. And, um, and I think, you know, at that bedside, that, that was me, but it was also a culmination of like some of the conversations I've had with you, because I think one of the things I'm learning as a pastor is there are some things that are natural and there are some things that definitely get better with, with teaching and training. Um, so I just have, I, I wanted to ask you a couple questions, um, that, that I've asked you in private, but then some of them I haven't ever asked you for, cause I just kind of want to know, but like, uh, for, for the pastor who, who's about to step into a stressful situation, be it, be it mourning, um, be it like someone has just got horrible news um, and you're outside the room. I think for me, being outside the room is, is the most nerve wracking because, you know, you're about to step into something that maybe emotionally I'm not there because I might have just came out of my son's birthday party or something. So so how how do you step into a room with a family that's hurting? Good question. Good question. And to be honest, uh, that is a struggle that never goes away. I mean, even after um, eight years experience working in hospice full time, I still have that struggle myself sometimes because we're human and we live in this moment and we carry all of our past experiences forward. So, yeah, there's there's sometimes when I have to be really versatile um, spiritually and emotionally, I might've just come from a birthday party and then I'm stepping into, uh, someone's final moments. I mean, that's, that's an incredible switch to make. Um, so you're not alone in that. 
and um, it's, so it's okay to give yourself a measure of grace on that. Um, and the first thing I would say, as far as how do you come into that room, in one word, humbly, humbly, uh, recognizing that, first of all, what you're about to do is not done in your own power. It does partly depend on you, but ultimately it depends on God working through you. Your part depends on being there and being available and being willing. God does the rest. Um, And so you are several very important things to the people in that room. First of all, you're a guest. You are a guest of honor. So try not to have a commanding presence when you come in the room, because you are a guest, but do come in the room with the authority that comes with that person inviting you into their most sensitive, private place of pain. They have a very painful moment they're going through, but they have called you to be the person that can heal those wounds. That's a privilege. That's an honor. And you are able to go where no one else has been invited to go, or maybe they have been, but they've not been willing to go. Um, So you're also a shepherd to that family. Despite your own personal theology, whatever it might be, in the eyes of that hurting person, you are literally bringing the presence of God into their valley of the shadow at that moment. They equate your presence with the presence of God. And that presence itself will bring comfort. Even if you never say a word. I have had moments myself where I'm invited into a hospital room with someone who is dying or otherwise suffering. And I might have no idea what to say to this family. But they've invited me there and I just sit quietly with them. And I might say nothing the whole time. And then when the times come to leave, I leave. And then later I'm thinking, what in the world did I do to even help these people? And I hear a, a feedback later from a nurse or a doctor or someone who says, that family was so thankful for what you did for them. You were so helpful. And I'm thinking, I didn't even say a word. But it, it was the fact of my very presence that I was there. Um, and so when you come into that room, um, you know, just a simple greeting, um, introductions to people that you don't know, Um, making physical contact with each person as soon as you can is important because making that physical contact kind of confirms we were together. You know, there's something about that physical touch that really adds to the experience for the other person. Um, And finally, uh, you're also an authority. You're, You're a religious and moral authority to that person, whatever their background might be. In their eyes, you have the answers that they seek. Now, perhaps you personally may not have specific answers, but you believe in the one who does have those answers, and they associate you with that. So you can give them guidance and direction. You can, for lack of a better term, talk them off the ledge if needed. You know, when they're in that moment of panic or confusion, Uh, Their minds and souls are often fractured by the crisis. They need you to be a sounding board and a moral compass as they are mulling over important decisions, decisions whose consequences will will stay with them the rest of their lives, perhaps. 
Um, and so being that guest, being that shepherd, being that authority, that's what you come into the room with. Um, so just, man, you know, oftentimes when I get a pastoral call, you, you walk into the room. I mean, I'm, I cannot speak for a pastor, you know, but you walk into the room and, and you're like, I know that I'm here. But when you codify it in those terms, to me, it helps you know how to operate a little bit more. You have you have an authority and a right to be there because you've been asked to be there and because of the office you hold. And so it's important to feel free to exercise the authority of your office. But you do it with humility, you know, knowing that you're the under shepherd. Um, and God is the one who's ultimately guiding everything, but you are looking for the cues that that person will give you as to what they need from you. Well, here's a question then. So we're look, picking up the cues from what they need. Um, but I also know there's oftentimes we misread that sometimes, especially if we're nervous. Sometimes we have a hard time picking up on social cues, especially if we haven't maybe done this a lot. Are there some some ditches that you would like, definitely stay out of these ditches. Don't do these things. <laughs> yes, that is a very good question. And um I have to always remind myself of that uh, because there are certain um, guardrails, if you will, that are helpful to follow. Um, You know, one of the most important things is to talk a lot less than you listen. Uh, I always like the old adage, God gave you two ears and one mouth because he wants you to listen (laughs) twice as much as you speak. Uh, But there's actually scripture to back that up. You know, in Ecclesiastes, it says um, that um, the more words oftentimes we use, the more grief it can cause. Um, And James says everyone should be, should be quick to listen and so slow to speak. Uh, And that can be key because we can't know how to help someone. We won't know what to say if we're the only one talking. Uh, I literally was in a hospital room uh, when a, pa- a family's pastor arrived. And typically the pastor is, is one of the best people to help them because you already have that working relationship with them mm-hmm. uh, on a spiritual level. Um, whereas, you know, me being a chaplain, I might only meet them for the very first time when they're at their worst moment. And I don't know where they're coming from. Uh, but this guy comes into the room and he's with the family and I could tell he was nervous and, and I don't hold that against him at all, but it's just what he did with that nervousness. Um, mm. He ended up, he didn't know what else to talk about. Uh, so he talked about his church, which can be helpful, you know, telling the person right. what's going on at church. They may not have been at church in a while. It helps them feel connected when they hear, you know, this is what we're doing at church lately, but, but he didn't stop there. He kept talking more and more about his church and he talked about himself and about his own ministry. And he was there for about maybe, Oh, 10 minutes and talked about himself the whole time. And no one in the room had an opportunity to tell him what it was they needed from him. Um, and he closed with a prayer. Uh, but the prayer couldn't really be specific to their needs other than a need for healing, obviously, because they were in the hospital uh, because he didn't really listen to what they had to say. So that's mm. very key. Um, another thing with that prayer, it's important not to use prayer like a band aid. 
we're tempted to do that as pastors because usually like at the first sign of trouble, we think, okay, we need to pray about this. Well, that may be true. There will be time to pray about it, but let's not do that necessarily first uh, because oftentimes prayer can actually shut down a conversation that needs to happen. Uh, so, so pray it when you feel that the moment is right. Once that person has had a chance to really talk through their issues and allow yourself to mourn with those who mourn, um, you know, like Job's friends, you know, we always, we often joke, Job, Job's friends were doing great until they opened their mouths. <laughs> you know, they just sat and listened to yeah, him for yeah. a while. Um, so, so certainly keep your mouth closed at first and you'll know when the time is right to speak. Mm. Um, a couple other things is, um, very important. Do not attempt to convince the person that you know how they feel or what it's like, unless you literally do know that from your own experience. And then it would be actually helpful to share some of your own experience, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Um, but do it in a way that brings the focus back onto them. Don't bring the focus onto yourself. Um, so, so otherwise, don't don't try to convince them that you know what it's like because you don't unless you've been in those shoes um and also uh with that don't even though it may be tempting don't try to convince the person that everything's going to be okay because honestly i mean only god knows the future and you may have dealt with this issue many times you may know how it turns out for other people but you don't really know how it's going to turn out for them um and so you can't really say with authority, it's going to be okay. Um, if you do, and it doesn't turn out to be okay, then they're less likely to trust you the next time, you know? So, so, so try to avoid that. Um, also, um, don't avoid the person. Um, don't ignore them. I know it's very easy to do because we're like, we get that phone call and it's, and it's like, oh, please, I need to talk. I need someone to talk to. And you're thinking, I have no idea what to say. I don't know how to deal with this. And so you kind of like tend to put off that visit or put off that phone call just because you don't know what to say. But you know what I hear time and time again is that people are able to forgive a misspoken word more easily than they're able to forgive never getting a call. Because uh, never getting a call or never getting a visit communicates, I don't care or I don't have time for you. Well, that may not be true. You know, you may have avoided for very good reasons. It's important to keep in contact. Uh, and that's more than simply saying, call me if you need me. Uh, I know we're all busy. We got a lot of irons in the fire um, in a pulpit ministry. Um and so it's tempting to say, call me if you need me. But that communicates to the person, okay, the ball is now in your court. Um, it's your responsibility to call me if you, if you need help and ask for help. Well, that person's already dealing with a crisis. So we've just added a layer of responsibility to that. What would be a better way to phrase that? You want to be there for people. Well, uh, a better way to phrase that is to say, just offer to call them. You know, like say they've just gotten the news today from the doctor. Okay. And they're going, 
for a follow-up appointment in a couple of days. Say, okay, well, I'll call you after your next appointment just to check in with you. You know, or maybe you don't have time for the conversation right then. Just communicate how important you know it is to them and say, I want to give you my undivided attention. So let so let's set up a good time we can sit down and talk. That gives you the freedom to pick a time that's good for you, but it also doesn't really put them off necessarily. I had another question down, and I think you kind of you brushed past it just now in your answer a little bit, but I, I think I want to park on it a second. Uh, and that was, you know, ministry of presence. And and what I'm hearing you saying is like literally the the art to it is just being there. <laughs> like like literally physically being there. Um now I I've I'm thinking back to a couple situations in my own mind. Admittedly, pastors a lot of times we're like hardwired to make a connection with somebody because that's how we start the shepherding process. And and so we do. We're like, oh, you went to this high school, I went to this high school, and then now we're I've now made the conversation about me, you know, and, and then, like you said, once you get to the part where you're praying for them, or even if you get called in to do the funeral, um, you don't know anything about this family, but they know all about you now. So, um, what, what would you say, um, how much presence is like too much, both physically, like in the room, as far as you owning the room and then how, when should you, re, um, when's a good mental cue to be like, okay, I probably should leave now and let this family have, I'm, I'm a guest who's wearing his welcome out. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Um, and I'd like to back up first, if I could, and talk about mm-hmm. really what it means to be present. Yeah. Um, cause I think if we, if we can define that, it'll be easier to identify like how much is too much because it is possible to have too little and too much. And we want to find that right balance. Um, and it really kind of touches across four dimensions, um, being physically present, being spiritually present, being emotionally present, and being mentally present. And just real briefly on uh, touching on each of those, um, physically present means just that, being there. Um, if 80% of communication is nonverbal, like we commonly hear, if you're not literally there, then you can't address 80% of what is being said because you can't observe body language, facial expressions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very important. Um, next, it means uh, spiritual presence, preparing yourself before you go, pray, stay connected to the Lord uh, and get spiritually centered. You may have just come from that birthday party. You might've just come out of an argument with your spouse. Um, you may have just come out of a really tense deacons meeting. Uh, whatever it is that you've just come out of, you don't want to carry that into your next meeting. Um, so, so take a minute and deal with that. Um, the success of your visit ultimately depends on the Holy Spirit working in you, not on your own abilities. So I'd recommend pray along Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. That was our guiding verse in uh, PSYCAP 5. You know, trust in the mm-hmm. Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. And all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That's very true in a pastoral care visit, because you need a lot of leading from the Lord, because you don't know where it's going to go. Um, on being emotionally present, um, that means be willing to go with the person emotionally wherever they might need you to go. Uh, a part of being able to do that is checking your own emotional baggage at the door, because we all have it. Uh, whatever conflicts, pains, stressors, 
uh, you carry with you into the room, that's going to affect how you are able to emotionally identify with the person in need. You know, you can't really help that person talk through uh, a conflict they have in a relationship if you're still emotionally dealing with the conflict you just had with your wife, for instance. You know, so you've got to be able to check that and you got to be willing to go there. And you may not be able to go everywhere a person goes. Uh, and that's okay because you're human. You know, they don't expect you to be Superman. You just do the best you can. And don't, don't, don't try to go emotionally to a place when you feel warning signs going off in your own heart, uh, because that's not going to help either one of you. Um, so that's a way you can give too much presence emotionally is when you feel you're crossing your own emotional boundaries. Uh, but finally, um, being mentally present, that means turning off as many distractions as possible uh, from the moment you enter the door. Silence your phone um, unless you're expecting a phone call that's life or death. You know, um, in, in that case, you would let the person know, you know, hey, you know, I mm-hmm. might get a phone call that I just have to take. Uh, I don't want to, but I'm just going to have to. But otherwise, don't. Um, and, uh, don't, don't be thinking about your schedule or your daily issues that you have going on that day, except keeping in mind when you know you have to leave because you obviously, you don't want to miss your next appointment. Uh, but just keep it in mind and don't obsess about it. Um, and learn the skills of active listening, which we might talk about a little bit later on. Uh, that's taught by Carl Rogers. It's a set of, uh, hard uh, hardly defined uh, skills that helps you really engage with the person on, on the individual level when they're talking. Basically, when you're with the person, nothing else in the world is more important. Okay, that's the essence of being present. So then it leads the question to how much is too much, as you say. Well, I'm tempted to say it's difficult to be too present because all too often, I mean, as as, as self-centered human beings that we naturally are, you know, we're naturally focused on ourselves and what we have going on right. in our world. It's, it's easy to get distracted. And it's easy to not be present enough. Uh, but in all cases, allow the other person to lead you. Don't force yourself on them. Uh, if you offer to make a visit and they say, no, thanks. I think I'm okay. Then trying to visit anyway would be being too present. Um, okay. You know, but, but if you offer a visit and they say, no, I don't think that's necessary, offer to just talk on the phone and try to get them engaged. Uh, avoid yes or no questions. You know, try to ask open-ended questions that get them talking. Um, and, and they'll tell you in that conversation either explicitly or they'll just indicate that, that they don't really have much of substance that they need to talk about. They might say, oh, you know, I really, I really am doing okay with this. You know, uh, I know it's all going to be okay, you know, or, or – especially whether in the phone or in person, if the conversation turns away from the, the issue of the moment and starts turning on to you, where they start talking about, mm-hmm. well, well, how are you doing, Pastor? How are things going at the church? Or they might start talking about current events, like, you know, what do you think about this election? Mm-hmm. Or what do you think about these news events or whatever? Right. If it starts turning towards mundane co- topics, that's an indication that the person is kind of finished talking about their issues. Okay. So that's a cue that, that you've actually been present and you might winding down that kind of session. Okay. Yes. And if you're ever unsure, 
um, look for signs. Like if, if the person you're talking to is physically ill themselves, look, look for signs mm-hmm. of fatigue. You know, do they look tired? You know, because conversation takes effort and at a certain point they will get worn out and you don't want to be a burden. So look for signs of fatigue or uh, look for signs of loss of interest in the conversation that you've been having. And at that point, if you're unsure whether you're still needed, it's okay to ask questions like, how else can I help you today? Or um, is there anything else we can talk about today? Or just kind of sum up your conversation and say, hey, you know, we, we've talked about an awful lot today. And I know that's that's been a heavy conversation. Is there anything more you want to talk about right now? And they'll tell you either yes or no. And if they say, well, you know, I can't really think of anything or no, I think you've helped me with everything on my mind, then that's your cue. Hey, let's wrap this up and get out the door. You know, typically a pastoral care visit will last maybe 15 to 20 minutes. Um, sometimes okay. they may take That's up good to, to an hour, yeah. especially yeah. on a first meeting where, where, you know, it's a mm-hmm. couple and they're having real, real strange. You might be there up to two hours if you, if, mm-hmm. if you have the time, you know, uh, but by and large, the person will tell you when they're done, if you're able to read the cues. And, and I've missed those before. Um, I went and visited somebody at a hospital about an hour and a half away and, um, I missed the cues and it ended up with me, um, sitting in a chair in the, in the corner of the room thinking I was being present. And then, um, you know, the family comes in and, and now I'm like, I got to leave, but now I've kind of pigeonholed myself into sitting in this room <laughs> and now it's like, it's going to be rude. Cause I did, I missed the opportunity. I, you know, I think a fair question that maybe many of us would have is, um, say we are sitting and cause you know, a lot of times we are being present. Um, I hate to just stand up and say, okay, I'm going to go now. Like, how do you, how do you leave, um, a visit? How do you, how do you appropriately leave? That's, that's just as important as how you enter. Mm-hmm. Good question. Uh, because you want to do it gracefully. And you want to do it in a way that leaves them feeling like they've been heard, their life's been touched, and they've been helped. So Mm -hmm. you definitely don't want to leave before you have some sense from that person that you have met their needs. So I go back to, you know, it's okay to verbally assess that at some point in the conversation, as we've said, you, you know, is there anything else I can help you with? You know, uh, you can also um, just kind of observe how the conversation is flowing. Uh, if they had been talking to you at length and now they're talking to each other um, for a while, it's okay to, when there's a break in the conversation, just to say, Hey, uh, I want to thank you for, for letting me be here with your family but uh, unless there's something else I can do for you right now, I'm going to step out for a few minutes, let you guys have some, some time together as a family, you know, some privacy. Mm. Uh, if you think it might be needed with that family, you could say, I'll check back in with you maybe in a few minutes. Or you might just say, um, you know, if there's anything else you need, I'll be glad to do that while I'm here. But otherwise, um, I'm going to go and I can call you later. Mm. You know, just kind of give them some sense that you'll still be in touch. Yeah. I, I like that way you worded that. It's almost like you were building an exit ramp by saying something like, 
it's been such an honor to hang out with you or, you know, say it, you know, more sincerely, but just thank you for your time to be here with you. Like, it's almost like you're building a social exit ramp and you're like, Hey, you want me to take this ramp? <laughs> yes, definitely. Definitely ease into it. You don't, you don't want to drop a hat like, Oh, look at the time, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's fair. You know, cause, cause I think some people, you know, I've been on the call, um, I've actually b- received pastoral care personally myself before, and uh, I was kind of in mid thought and, uh, the pastor goes, well, uh, uh, I gotta go. And I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and it kind of made it hard for me to warm up to him again. So a couple of, um, sticking points might be if you're with someone who is very talkative, like they're just talking on and on and on and you're listening, you're doing a good job listening and you want to be there, but they just don't seem to have an end in sight. And, and you're thinking, I got to be at a deacon's meeting in 15 minutes. <laughs> Real talk. <laughs> like, what do you do with that? So that's why I say always keep in mind when you have to leave, uh, always begin your visit with the end in mind. And so you know how long it's going to take you to get where you have to go next. So give yourself some, uh, cue maybe you could set a little buzzer on your phone that mm-hmm. says okay i know i need 15 minutes to get to my next appointment so i'm going to set this buzzer for 10 minutes before that and when you feel that buzzer go off you might say to the person okay um just kind of f- find a way to ease into that conversation mm-hmm. just or just say hey i need you to pause you just for a moment um i want to hear what you have to say but i just want to let you know i've just got a few minutes left So let's, you know, I want to invite you to share with me what's the most pressing thing on your mind right now in in the last few minutes that Mm -hmm. we have. And and in doing that, you're kind of priming the pump where you now you've said to the person, I've only got a few minutes left. So now they're aware Mm -hmm. of that. So then the next time you say it, you can say, "Okay, that's about all the time I have for today. Maybe we can talk more next time. Maybe let's close with a prayer, you know, and talk Mm -hmm. about that. Um, so again, again, you can kind of ease into it. The other thing is, what do I do? How do I tell uh, non-verbally if a person still needs me? Um, if that person still has tears in their eyes, okay, mm-hmm. that's a good yeah. cue. Yeah. Um, if that person mm-hmm. is still holding your hand, mm-hmm. If they're still holding, if you're holding tightly to their hand, that's one thing. But if they're holding tightly to your hand, they're not done with you. Hmm. Okay. So So that's just a couple things things to look for. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good. I think um, one of the things that, that I've missed before is, is because you, you can get ahead of yourself in the room. You can, you know, kind of like when you're preaching, you're already thinking about how am I going to land the sermon while I'm on point number two. And I think it's really easy to get into like, okay, how am I going to land this session? Um, meanwhile, I'm missing those social cues. I'm missing those verbal cues. And I, I you said something a second ago. I love to revisit that because um, you were talking about active listening. And I think that's one of the things what I've seen helps keep us in that room in the present sense a little bit more. Can you give us a little bit of like, what, how do you active listen when you're with anyone who's in counseling like that? Yeah. Um, the most important skills of active listening are all nonverbal uh, eye contact. Okay. By and large, eye contact is a sign of respect. 
Um, and so it communicates to that person, you have my full attention. Um, you can give too much eye contact. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend staring at someone you know, without any break. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hi. Yeah. Because uh, that can make them uncomfortable. Uh, but when you're talking to them, make eye contact. When they're talking to you, make eye contact. Um, you know, it's okay to occasionally glance around, but always come back to them. And definitely don't be, don't be looking at something else like your phone or something like that uh, while they're talking to you, because that says, I'm distracted. Um, also, just your posture. Here's a key. Match the posture of the other person. If, if that other person is kind of laid back on the couch, kind of relaxed, do the same thing. Because if you're sitting on the edge of your seat leaning forward while they're relaxed, they're, that's going to communicate. It's going to make them feel like you're tense. Okay. But if they're tense, if they're sitting on the edge of their seat, if they're leaning forward, they're tapping their foot. You don't have to do all that, but you can, but you can sit forward in your seat. There's actually a, a position um, I forget the specific name of it. Uh, I think it's called the sprint position uh, where you can sit and I can't demonstrate it right now on this call because you can't see all of me. Um, but basically it is putting your feet up under your chair. Okay. So your toes okay. are touching the floor. Okay? okay. And sitting up straight and leaning slightly forward. Okay. Okay. That yeah. communicates. Yeah. I am really interested in what's right in front of me. Okay non-verbally. Um, so that, that's really good. Uh, the expression on your face really helps always be aware of that. You know, do I have a hard look on my face? Does my face feel tense? Uh, am I smiling while this person is weeping? You know, uh, um, just make sure that you're, you're, you're congruent with what's going on. And one other thing is, uh, non-verbally speaking, um, do you have what's called an open or closed position. If I'm sitting here with my arms crossed, that's what we call a closed position. And that, that communicates that I'm closed up, that I'm kind of pensive or, or not really emotionally warm. But if I were to open my arms and I sit back and I'm relaxed like this, you know, and the same goes with your legs, yeah, keeping your legs crossed or uncrossed, uh, which I know for, for any um, female caregivers that may be listening, that might be a different kind of issue because you might be wearing a skirt and you might want to keep your legs crossed. And then in that case, that's socially acceptable. That's different. Um, but uh, especially keeping your arms uncrossed is, is helpful. As far as the verbal cues of, of active listening, communicate to the person that you're listening. As in, follow the conversation with words like, okay, yeah. I hear you. Um, or if there's a if there's a pause in their conversation, allow the pause. That can be very helpful because it gives them time to think. It can also give you time to think. Uh, but after there's been a little bit of a pause, if they don't say anything else, you could just say, can you tell me more about that? Or as you've done a couple of times, Dale, you could say, let, let me go back to something you said a minute ago. That communicates, I'm really listening to what you have to say. Um you can also, what's very helpful, is reflect back to the person what they've said to you. If they've said a lot, like paragraphs, you can just summarize it. You could just say, if I heard you right, 
let me summarize what you just said. And then they'll tell you either yes or no. Uh, if you didn't get it right, they'll correct you. And that's really to your benefit. Yeah. Okay. And, and very importantly, reflect the feeling that you think is behind what they're saying. You could say, wow, that, that sounds, sounds really scary. Or that's, that sounds, that sounds really in angering, you know, or if I was in that situation, I would feel, you know, this right here. Um, or you might even just say, wow, it really feels like no one's listening to what you have to say. Yeah. And, and you yourself probably know how relieving it is to have someone say that say, oh, yeah, yeah. I really feel like no one's heard me. Um, so those that's in an essence active listening. But if you, if you actually Google active listening by Carl Rogers, C A R L R O G E R S, there's a huge amount of resources out there that can give you concrete, specific skills, um, to, to, to look for, um, and to learn. That's helpful. That's, um, and I, and on, on that note, uh, I think you, you probably know some places where we can go to learn more about all of this that we wouldn't even know what well to go to, to draw that from. Um, so as far as books, literatures, um, do you have any books that you would just recommend to us just to go further down this rabbit hole? Yes. Yes. There are lots of books out there. There's no need to reinvent the wheel uh, when it comes to providing care. And it can be really bewildering um, if you don't feel um, educated or trained on the subject matter that you're working on. So just like um, all of us as pastors do when we are studying for our sermons, pay attention to the author. Okay, uh, titles are good, but authors are better to study. Uh, learn as much as you can about the person, uh, their background, their theology, um, kind of the angle that their perspective takes, uh, because that'll tell you whether or not that person's teachings are going to be congruent with your theology. Um, and it's okay to find someone who isn't completely congruent with your theology, because that can that can stretch you, and that can that can be a learning moment for you to kind of broaden your perspective because the people you care for are coming from all different types of backgrounds and um, that can help you identify with them. So I've come across a few books uh, that I want to recommend. These are specific more to um, the issues of pain that is spiritual and emotional pain, uh, loss and dying, because uh, those are some of the heaviest issues that we face in life. Um, so I have some that I want to just go through one at a time real briefly. Yeah. One is called, um, When Is It Right to Die? I don't know if you can see this, if it's uh, turning my yeah. screen backwards, but When Is It Right to Die by Joni Erickson Tata. You may have recognized that name. She was an Olympic athlete. Uh, she was a diver uh, when she was just coming out of her teenage years. She had a diving accident. She broke her neck. She was paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. And in this book, she is going to outline her journey of recovery. She spent two years in an acute care hospital. Wow. 
she couldn't even she couldn't even move any more than her head and she journeys her 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 um excuse me she catalogs her journey of, of physical suffering and spiritual suffering as she searches questions like is it ever, is it okay for me to die now how do i live now what does all of this mean uh, when should i give up and this is an incredible book where she is going to argue for life at all costs life despite everything um you know she's going to argue against pulling the plug on life support. She's going to argue against suicide. She's going to argue uh, against euthanasia, um, all those things in favor of life. And it's written from a Christian perspective. It's wonderful. That sounds um, good, yeah. Yes, very good book. Um, another one that I would recommend from a Christian author, you may have heard, this is A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is a staple in... Um, Christian literature, and A Grief Observed is his own personal account of grief and loss and how he experienced that and how he found comfort and hope and meaning. This is a great um, companion to any pastor who wants to know what it's like to personally experience this and what your people might be going through. Um, Another one is, uh, I'll, go, I'll go ahead and say this one. This is On Death and Dying by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. This one I would not recommend as your first read because it's pretty heavy. It gets into some some real um, detailed theories. Uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was not a pastor. She was a psychologist who worked with pastors, and she kind of helped start pastoral care ministry in a hospital setting back in the 70s. And this is going to be her account of thousands of people that she interviewed who were dying and what she learned of them. And she came up with that five stages of grief theory that you always hear about. Um, So I would recommend this once you've read some other books. Um, Okay, so it's kind of that's kind of a heavy read, but it's helpful nonetheless. Um, And then finally, a couple more. this one is called Night. It's, it's by an author named Ellie Weasel. Ellie or Ellie Weisel. I'm not sure I got that right. Um, now, Ellie Weisel is not Christian. He is Jewish. So he's going to write what he is talking about from a Jewish perspective. Uh, but he is a very devout Jew. So he believes in the God of the Old Testament. And this account is his personal experience of World War II concentration camps. He was taken to Auschwitz, then he was taken to Buchenwald, and during there he witnessed the death of his, each member of his family. And then he's also experiencing his own suffering, and so he's going to explore questions of how could a loving God let this happen? And how do I find God in the valley of the shadow of death? Um, and as I said, he's writing it from a Jewish perspective, but nonetheless, he's writing it from a religious perspective. And he's asking a lot of the same questions that we as Christians would ask. Um, and so this is a powerful personal insight into what people experience in the deepest suffering. Um, and then another one, very good. This is a groundbreaking work called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Again, another Jewish author. Again, written from experience on World War II, 
but Viktor Frankl was a psychologist before World War II. He wrote his theory called logotherapy. Okay, logo taken from the Greek word or meaning, a message, and therapy meaning healing. And his theory is that what gives us ultimate meaning in life is that which we find most important to us. It's not the search for pleasure like Freud thought. It's not the the search for knowledge or anything. It's the search for what is most personally important to us. And as Christians, that's our faith. Okay, that's what gives us meaning. And so interestingly, Viktor Frankl wrote his theory just before he was arrested by the Nazis and put into a concentration camp where he began living his theory. Living it. He lived it and tested it, and he says that is what helped him survive. And this is this book has sold 17 million copies around the world. It's been translated into 50 languages. Definitely worth reading. That is the most ironic twist in a book. <laughs> that is so yes. ironic. Yeah, you, you write it, yes. and then God's like, oh, now you get to live it. Phew, okay. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, the last one I want to recommend real quick, uh, I don't actually have it with me because uh, it's at my office, unfortunately, because I refer to it so often. It's called The Wounded Healer by Henry Nowen. The Wounded Healer by Henry Nowen. That's spelled H-E-N-R-I-N-O-U. D, excuse me, N-O-U-W-E-N. Henry Nowen is a Catholic monk. So he's going to write his work from a slightly Catholic perspective. But what he's focusing on is how do we help someone who is spiritually wounded? And we do that from a place of our own woundedness. By being in touch with our own pain and our own wounds, that gives us the resources that we can draw upon to say, I hear you. I can identify with you, and together we can find healing. It's a short read. I think it's maybe like 100 pages, Um, but in those pages, it's packed full of wisdom. So if you're wanting to really jump into this, that would be a great primer book. Would you consider it just to kind of get you into down the path? Yes, that was actually yep. one of my yep. uh, first books uh, on my reading list when I took hmm. uh, back at CSU when uh, you and I were under, right. in undergrad. I took a pastoral uh, pastoral counseling class with uh, Dr. Wendell Gary. Um, if you remember Almost Dr. Gary, no, oh, I remember Dr. Gary. <laughs> he gave me a B. He gave me a B, a B in preaching class because he said I preached too loud. Um, now, now the irony on that is if you know anything about Dr. Gary, he had a hearing aid. So yes. <laughs> I was like, man, I really need to tone it down some. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That was one of the first books he ever recommended me to read. And that has stayed with me. That was, that was seminal in, in my uh, journey as a pastoral caregiver. Yeah. I think one of the things I, I see a commonality in a lot of these books, and I, and I think this might be a good exercise just for me as a pastor. It seems like a lot of these books are, are saying, these are the questions people are asking in grief. And we need to be familiar with those questions be, before they're necessarily thrust upon us. We, we, have to, we have to answer those questions ourselves first. Mm. 
you know, because in order to explore those questions, we have to be willing to explore our own valley of shadows and our own pain and grief. And if you're thinking, you know, all these topics are depressing, you know, they're scary or, or it's just going to get me all upset. Well, that may be true. Um, seek it in prayer, covered in prayer. Um, find a trusted friend that you can talk through these issues about because you've got to you got to address these questions yourself before you're ready to address them for anyone else. Man, that's good. Like learning all of the questions, and I know uh, some some questions you're just not going to be ready for. You know, I know at, at our church um, we have pastor who's on call that week, and one one week I got a call and it was um, Dell. We need you to go. Um, pray with this man. And I believe it was Florence. So it was actually your neck of the woods, Florence, South Carolina. Um, he just had his foot amputated, um, diabetic. And um, so now he's dealing with, you know, a missed appendage. So I, I go into the room and I'm like, I, I don't know what to say. I didn't know all these things. I think this was my first year here, even at the church I'm at now. And I walked in the room and this was his first thing he said to me. Oh, so you're the guy who drove the short straw. <laughs> I was like, Okay, so this isn't going to be a normal pastoral call meeting, actually. But, you know, for me, what I learned is, um, man, that's a blessing when you have um, someone you're caring for who knows how to break the ice, um, because oftentimes breaking the ice is um, you have to be gentle so it doesn't smash all over the place. So um, and, you know, it, one of the one of the hardest things to get around is that is when you ask somebody how you're doing and they say, I'm fine. The. The best way to avoid that is to not ask that question. Never because ask that question. <laughs> people expect that question. How are you? And the automatic answer is, I'm fine. And so so maybe kind of preface it with, you know, man, you know, last time we talked, you said you had a lot going on. I just want to see how you've been doing since then or, or just kind of follow up on those issues. Uh, additionally, man, if, if you're meeting with somebody who's laying in a hospital bed, okay, and you ask how you doing, and they say, "Oh, I'm fine." You can kind of just do a double take on that, and you say, "Are you sure? Because you're in a hospital bed right now." <laughs> yeah. And I, and oftentimes yeah. I I say that, and it makes the person kind of think twice about what they just said because they didn't even think that's about fair. what they said. And they're like, oh, "That's a good point." Okay, well maybe I'm not quite so fine, but and then they talk. Or option B, you just look extremely not checked in. <laughs> <laughs> one time uh, the first one i ever did i was 18 man and a guy who i went to hos um high school with he got in a bad car accident like almost lost his arm almost lost his life i walked in the room i didn't know what to say i just said how are you he goes i'm literally almost dead bro like wrong question <laughs> I was like, okay thanks ryan i'm learning off your back here <laughs> so um but you can actually but, you can actually build on those things because like Suppose he had said, "I'm I'm literally almost dead," or "or I literally almost died." Try to identify what what feelings might go with that, and just there say, "Wow, that sounds like that was a scary experience." Tell me more, because the person has now told you, "I'm ready to talk about being dead or almost being dead." Yeah, so that's good. So, like, you can even take what you would consider like a botched sentiment and like probe it for the emotion that you've gotten back. I like that. So, so that's good because a lot of times I'm afraid, am I going to say the right thing or the wrong thing? 
Um, but it's like, well, like you said earlier, it, you're saying something, which is better than nothing. So whatever response you get, try to check into the emotion behind that response. Is that fair? Yes. Yes. Including humor, because humor is humor is a coping tool. So you might get a really unexpected response, like you're a person who is in a crisis cracks a joke. Okay. And that that's a sign that that they may be either either they're already coping well enough that the situation is not bothering them like you might expect, or it's coping is bothering them that bad that they have to laugh so they don't cry. And so you can kind of gently point that out with something like, like, wow, I love your sense of humor. I never would expect someone in a crisis like this to be able to laugh. And then just kind of leave it there and just let them respond to that and see what they say. Because you're kind of calling them on it gently, (laughs) you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, Nathan, um, I'm going to have to close our time out right now. But really quick, I just want to let everyone who's listening right now know I'm going to put all Nathan's resources down in the show notes. I'm going to pick up a few of these books as well, Um, especially that one. It sounds real fun, like you're swimming in mud. (laughs) But I think the truth be told, you know, um, sometimes those are the ones that plowing through really do help us get to the questions. Um, But today, I actually don't want to take the last word. I want to give you the last word, Nathan. So um, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to let you kind of answer it and close out. Sound cool? All right. Um, So. I'm a pastor. I just got a call and I'm about to step into a tense situation, any generic pastoral care situation. Um, What's the one phrase or thing that I should utter before my mind, before I walk into any pastoral care? Mm, Good question. And I would say that the one thing that you should say to yourself before you go into any pastoral care situation is a simple prayer. God, speak through me. Give me the words to say. Because I don't know myself. Well, Nathan, thank you for all your words today, bro. I love you, man. Love you too, bro. Thanks for your time. Look forward to the next time. 